Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome to the Karma You podcast. This is your host, Chloe Brotheridge. I'm a coach, a hypnotherapist, and I'm the author of The Anxiety Solution and Brave New Girl. And this podcast is all about helping you to become your calmest, happiest, and most confident self. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Karma You podcast. I took a little break over the summer from recording episodes. It started to take over a little bit. I needed a break. I needed to catch up on recording and reading people's books to interview them and that sort of thing. So it's been great to have some time off. I still am between homes of no fixed abode, currently in Cornwall again, staying at my boyfriend's mum's place, which is very lovely, and hoping to move into a place around October in the north of England. So it's a big change from London to Bali to Cornwall to the north of England where I grew up. But yeah, it's all good. And the podcast is going to be back now and regular episodes every Monday. So keep an eye out for those. So today on the podcast, I'm talking to Naomi Shragai, who has a new book out called The Man Who Mistook His Job for His Life. She is an executive coach. She's a psychological business consultant and a qualified psychotherapist with over 30 years experience. And we get into all sorts of topics. She tells us about what stand up comedy taught her basically my worst nightmare <laughs> and she is extremely brave in my view anyone who does uh, stand-up comedy incredibly brave but she she shares about what this taught her and what it can teach all of us we spoke about what it means to be hijacked by strong feelings we've all had that haven't we where a feeling seems to pop up out of nowhere and suddenly it's like you're out of control you're reacting you're saying something you don't want to say you're feeling something so strongly that it's like it pulls you off centre and we talk about that and what we can do about those moments when that happens to us. We talk about imposter syndrome and she has a really interesting perspective on this about how it might not be a fear of failure but actually a fear of something else and I thought this was fascinating. We also get into, this is such a popular topic at the moment I'm noticing, what is the difference between a productive narcissist and a pathological narcissist? I didn't even realise those there was a difference or I didn't know what that was but she explains it how to spot them what to do if you have a narcissistic boss it's very very interesting so I hope you like this episode so welcome Naomi thank you so much for joining me how are you doing today yes very well thank you nice to see you can you tell us a little bit about what you do and how you got to where you are today sure well I'm a a psychotherapist I've been a psychotherapist for over 30 years But um, for the last sort of 15 years or so, more and more people have been bringing more work-related issues 
to my consulting room, you know, they're just feeling more vulnerable at work. I think with the change of work culture, uh, the insecurity of work, the competitiveness, um, just the change of culture, people were just feeling more vulnerable and they wanted to talk about it. And uh, I realized, you know, some years ago that this was an area that people weren't really talking about, uh, the deeper kind of psychological motivations behind their work-related problems. So I began writing about some of these themes for the Financial Times, I think perhaps about 10 years ago. So my earliest features were about de um, dealing with difficult bosses, narcissistic bosses, having difficult conversations, people's difficulty in delegating work, and perhaps what was what were the underlying motivations for that. So I started writing these features and I had qu quite a big reaction in the paper and subsequently in my practice as well. So I've since specialized in helping people to understand the psychological dynamics behind their work-related issues, interpersonal problems, personal issues. Why were they sabotaging their work? You know, oftentimes what happens is people, um, they, you know, they know their habits are undermining their work. So they know that their perfectionism is causing a problem. They know that their colleagues are getting irritated and they know they're not getting much done in the process, but they feel compelled to stop. They feel compelled to carry on, excuse me, and unable to stop. So those are the sorts of things I'm interested in. Why people repeat behaviors that they know are undermining and sabotaging their work, but they just can't stop. And oftentimes it's because it's something they haven't understood deeply enough. So they might be getting all the right advice and the, all the advice is very well-meaning, but with the best advice in the world, they feel compelled to carry on. So that's where I come in. So in a so sense, that's where I am today. Yeah. Yeah. So interesting. And I know we all have those things, don't we? It's, it's almost like the kind of the, I often think about this as being like such a universal thing of humans. It's like, we know we should be doing something differently, but somehow we can't seem to change things we we feel really stuck or we're in this repeating pattern and yeah I've definitely noticed from people that I've spoken to how work is such a source of stress or anxiety or you know insecurity for people and what a big impact it has on our lives our work and and yeah so it doesn't surprise me that you're seeing you know more and more people coming to you for this that's right Yes, yes. So you've got an, a new book out called The Man Who Mistook His Job for His Life. Can you tell us what that is about and what made you want to write the book? Well, I guess the book is a continuation of my work and the work that I've been involved in for, I guess, some over 15 years now, which is how to understand people's work-related problems by understanding their unconscious motivations. But it's really by digging, digging deeply and oftentimes into their childhood. So the book is packed with intimate stories about people's working lives but it's not just their working lives but it's retracing their problems to their earliest family experiences and coming to understand how your very early experiences start to have a profound influence in terms of how you relate in the workplace not just how you relate in the workplace but also about your deeper deepest vulnerabilities you know oftentimes work is a place that we try to resolve some of our earliest conflicts but of course, oftentimes that creates more problems than, than it solves. So the book is an extension of my work. It's, it's as I say, full of 
case studies, which are quite interesting, and hopefully a lot of insights to help people understand, you know, some of the confusing dynamics in the workplace, helping people to understand what's behind some of the typical personality clashes that we experience, why people struggle with conflict, um, how to understand irrational behavior, our own and that of our colleagues and bosses, how to deal with difficult bosses. So I hope it's packed with some of the some of the more you know uh, common issues that people struggle with in the workplace. Yeah, that's something that I really loved about the book, the the storytelling and how many different stories there are and how you know, every story, there might be something that I can relate to in there that's kind of showing me something about myself and, and highlighting something. So it was really, really powerful how you did that. So yeah, one of the stories that you share, which is one of your own stories, is about how you have done stand-up comedy. And I have to say, stand-up comedy is probably my worst nightmare. I'm pretty sure I have had nightmares about it, about having to do it. I've never done it before. But... I'm curious to know from you, what was your experience of that and what did that teach you? Well, um, that's what most people say to me when they hear that I've done stand-up comedy. Of course, it was many years ago. It was more than 20 years ago. So it's quite a long time ago. It was back in the 90s and um, quite some time. And of course, for most people, it is their worst nightmare. You know, why would anybody risk that kind of rejection and humiliation on stage? Because of course, when things go wrong, they're absolutely excruciating and as you see in the book I've written something about that experience just how awful it can be but of course there's the opposite experience that when when it's going well and people are laughing and your uh, your performance is going down a storm it genuinely feels like you're uh, loved it, it does feel that way and so it becomes very compelling you want to recapture that feeling over and over again and of course, I don't think I'm different than many stand-up comics to say that one of the things I'm looking for in performance is, you know, to be loved, to be liked, to be applauded, um, you know, all of those good feelings. So that's, of course, what um, that, 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 that drive can be so strong that it can compel you to go back on stage, even after a death or just an excruciating performance. Yeah, so, so interesting. And yeah, yeah, I know you talk about it, it being, I think, I think this is what stand-up comedies call it, like you die on stage if yeah. you get, you bomb or you get booed or something, it, they call it a death. And um, yeah, I suppose, you know, surviving that experience, surviving, <laughs> surviving a death, you know, it's got to give you a lot of resilience, I would imagine. Well, it, it, it gives you resilience in the sense that you know, although it's excruciating, uh, well, first of all, you know, it doesn't kill you. You know, you can bear it. And the other thing is, even though you've had a death, that, you know, the drive to get back on and do better and overcome it and have a fabulous performance. I mean, that drive is so strong that it can overcome that fear of rejection. In fact, it's really that powerful. So it does give you an enormous amount of resilience, I have to say. And I, I guess I would advise anybody who's considering a career in stand-up comedy, I would say that surviving rejection, being able to deal with rejection, getting back on stage after the most excruciating death is perhaps the most important skill to have above anything else. Um, because if you can't get back on stage, then 
then your career is cut short. But it's interesting because I, I, I think that resilience, that ability to overcome rejection, to overcome setbacks, is equally what people need in any career, really. You know, the capacity to get over a setback, uh, to tolerate really horrible feelings and still persevere is what's required in most professions. Absolutely, yeah. And I know from my own work, you know, when you work for yourself, you know, you're your own boss and you're you're the one putting yourself out there and the one getting rejected. Like I was telling one, one of my friends, oh, I got rejected about five times today. <laughs> How was your day? And but it does teach you that, you know, you can you can try things and you can survive. And I imagine doing something like whether it's regular or public speaking or stand up comedy or anything like that, where you're really putting yourself out there yeah must teach you a lot about how you don't die if someone says no you don't die if people boo you off stage um it might be you know painful but it's not gonna it's not gonna kill you and and what you're saying it sounds like is is really important to try again and to to go out there and um kind of prove to yourself that you can you can get through it Mm, absolutely one of the things you talk about in the book is you know, when we get hijacked by strong feelings and can, can you share what you mean by that and, and maybe some examples of when when that might happen for people? And, you know, what can we do when we find ourselves getting hijacked by strong feelings in that way? Well, yes, it's very, very um, common experience. But basically, what I'm referring to is when people are overwhelmed by strong feelings. So they're overtaken by fear. It might be jealousy or envy. It might be resentment, you know, for some people in the workplace, you know, it could be as strong as rage. And these feelings can be so powerful that they can distort our thinking. So, you know, just because you have a strong feeling, it doesn't mean that your strong feeling is accurate. You know, because feelings can be misleading too. So just because you're feeling, let's say, envious or you're feeling resentful, yeah, it, it, it may not be accurate, but if the feeling's very strong, you can lose your sense of judgment because feelings can overtake our capacity to, to perceive and think clearly and also to respond appropriately. So what I refer to by being hijacked by strong feelings is when our feelings overtake us and overwhelm us and distort our better judgment. So sometimes, for example, we might know that we need to ask for help in the workplace, um, but we're so terrified of exposing, let's say, a weakness, or we just feel so uncomfortable asking for help that our fear overtakes our better judgment. And that's what I mean when I say hijacked by strong feelings. Yeah, yeah, I can. um, I'm just sort of thinking about... (laughs) different times when I may have been hijacked by strong feelings when it's only looking back that you realize you were being irrational at the time you're indignant or you think that you're right or you think that this is a you know if you're angry about something for example it can seem at the time like yes this is justified but actually looking back you realize maybe it isn't and yeah our thoughts our feelings are not necessarily telling us the truth when we're when particularly that it harks back to an old wound or an old pain I know you talk a lot about that in the book um yeah so it's it's really it's horrible when that happens it's horrible but what what can people do in those moments is it like is there something we can do in those moments to to help it or is it something we do beforehand to prepare for that well oftentimes uh, the feelings can take us by surprise do you know that feeling when suddenly you're alarmed because you're suddenly overtaken with rage 
perhaps or resentment or just you just feel so hostile towards somebody and you're kind of struck and even surprised by your own reaction and your own strong feeling you can hardly believe yourself or hardly believe how unfair you can be in judging other people you can even you know judge yourself harshly for that but you kind of can't help it it's quite powerful I think uh, one of the things to say is in those moments, it's, you know, quite important to be able to learn to contain your feelings and not act on them. When feelings are quite strong, they, they they can be misleading and taking us down some strange rabbit hole. So the important thing is to learn to contain feelings, to sit with them, to consider them, and more importantly, not act on them if you're feeling let's say, quite resentful towards a colleague in the workplace. Before you say anything or do anything that might cause more harm or damage, because perhaps your feelings are misleading you, the important thing is to sit with those feelings. Take some time and try to reflect and consider where those feelings are coming from. Now, it might be, and you've seen this in the book, of course, that some of these feelings can actually be located from our earliest experiences and early lives, so that they're triggering perhaps even early traumas in our lives. So we're not being traumatized in the workplace, but it can feel as if we are. So being ignored in the workplace, for example, can feel uncomfortable. But if it feels that you're being traumatized or you feel traumatized, it's a good indication that your feelings are misleading you. You need to stop, you need to contain your feelings. You need to reflect on those feelings. Now. Oftentimes, our own minds, when we're hijacked by our feelings, are of little use, because oftentimes what happens in our minds is we repeat some monologue in our head. We have an explanation or a story that we repeat to ourselves. But if our own stories are not helpful, because they can be misleading us as well, it's important to gain perspective, you know, to speak to somebody, you know, perhaps a coach or a psychotherapist or close ally or speak to somebody to help you gain perspective and you know to gain some clarity so uh, I guess what it boils down to is containing your feelings and then gaining perspective and developing some insight into understanding what those strong feelings are about yeah yeah that's really helpful I think um yeah definitely telling someone about it sometimes just getting sometimes just saying it out loud you hear it said out loud and you just get a different perspective on it because you you kind of externalize it or getting someone else's input onto something um can just help us to reframe it and and to see it differently before we you know I'm thinking about like getting an email and before you like angrily reply to that email you know taking a moment sitting with the feelings and maybe talking to someone about it if you're noticing that it's like it's triggering something old from the past or something that seems excessive for the for the situation. That's right. And one of the things I I talk about a lot is that I think this capacity and ability to sit with and tolerate strong feelings is an enormous, enormously underestimated skill. You know, if we can't tolerate a feeling, we're much more likely to act on it. If we act on it, we're much more likely to do some harm or damage as a result. So having a capacity to sit with uncomfortable feelings is so important and so crucial. And unfortunately, in the current culture, there's a sort of a belief that we shouldn't have bad feelings or that situation shouldn't upset us. 
but of course they do because that's life and, and things happen and not just things happen in life but things happen more importantly internally inside ourselves and of course strong feelings and uncomfortable feelings emerge so being able to deal with them and oftentimes what I talk about is developing a sort of emotional muscle and what I mean about that is when strong feelings erupt if you can sit with them and tolerate them, you're somehow beginning to build the muscle that's required in order to tolerate these feelings. And that kind of can build over time. And each time we uh, act on those feelings, we lose that capacity. You know, we say to ourselves, like, I, I can't cope with these feelings. I can't deal with them. And you have to get rid of them. Now, when people get rid of bad feelings, oftentimes, well, they can act on them, which sometimes cause harm. But the other thing can happen is they can act them out passive aggressively in the workplace. So, you know, if they're feeling resentful or wh whatever it might be, hostile, angry, hatred, all sorts of uncomfortable mm -hmm. feelings happen in the workplace. And if they don't have a way of tolerating and managing and understanding their feelings, they're much more likely to be acted out passive aggressively in the workplace. And this is oftentimes what's behind, let's say, malicious gossip or the sorts of behaviors that undermine work we you know withholding information from colleagues for example not not supporting them in a way that they need or missing meetings or just missing work so if feelings can't be tolerated there's quite a lot of consequences to that it's just so important yeah so if we don't if we don't kind of manage our own feelings or allow ourselves to sit with them and process them then it'll come out in another way we'll either I don't know. Yeah, it'll, it'll leak out in passive aggression or mean gossip or something like that. So learning how to sort of tolerate and, and hold our own feelings and deal with them in a healthy way. Now, this episode of the Karma You podcast is sponsored by my five day anxiety challenge. Now, this anxiety challenge is for you if you are a world class overthinker and you find it hard to switch off at the end of the day. It's for you if your mind automatically goes to the worst case scenario whenever you're doing something new or different. If you struggle with a voice in your head that criticises your every move. If you find it hard to be present because you're busy worrying and second guessing yourself. Or if you wake up at 5am with a racing heart, adrenaline pumping and a sense of dread in your stomach about the day ahead. In this five day challenge, I give you a daily exercise that will help you to tune in to a calmer version of yourself. There's a hypnotherapy session in there to help you to feel calmer instantly. I'm sharing my favourite tool for releasing stress and tension from the body and lots more. Plus you get a special invite to invite your friends to do the challenge for free because sharing is caring and group support is invaluable. You can join the anxiety challenge today. It's $4.99 to join. You get to keep it forever and do it as many times as you want. You can head over to calmer hyphen you.com forward slash anxiety challenge or one word so that's karma hyphen you.com forward slash anxiety challenge or one word i hope you like it mm, it's gonna absolutely. yeah but we're not really taught that are we we're not we're not taught that that's no. why we need people like you <laughs> in our lives um yeah so i was wondering about imposter syndrome this is such a big topic i feel like Everyone's talking about imposter syndrome in the last couple of years. It's much more something that we're aware of. And I love that you talk about it in terms of, you know, perhaps it's not actually a fear of failure. Perhaps it's a fear of success. Can you can you share what you mean by that? 
Yes, it can be. I mean, you know, most people, when they think about imposter syndrome, first of all, most people get imposter syndrome, I think it's misunderstood. Everyone says sort of imposter syndrome as if it's something that everybody has. But of course, it means something differently for, for everyone. So there's, you know, on the milder end of imposter syndrome, of course, it's quite useful because all it is is self-doubt. Well, if you're in a new role or new position, new at your job, well, why shouldn't you doubt yourself? That, that feels perfectly healthy, realistic, and quite normal. And it might be that there are some things that, yes, you do need to learn, or you do need to develop particular skills. So it's not necessarily a bad thing. I, I think that's one thing to say. Of course, if you go on to the extreme end, you know, those feelings can undermine your decisions and behavior. So, you know, we're talking about something else. So, but you asked another question, which was more to do with uh, it not being a fear of failure, but a fear of success. And I think the fear of success is more deeply unconscious. So while consciously we might be aware of a fear of failure, and most people might say, oh, I don't want to fail. I think the fear of success for many people is more uh, unconscious. So, you know, because if we think about it, failure, although it might feel bad, it also uh, provides a kind of a get out clause. So for people who find themselves in a position, perhaps they're in a new role or newly promoted, you know, the idea of a get out clause is quite enticing if you think about it. So they might, for example, unconsciously struggle with delegating work, undermining their work, so that in fact they don't succeed because remember that success brings with it more responsibility, more decisions to make, more people to piss off and ultimately more exposure. And with that more exposure uh, comes more anxiety. And with that anxiety comes more imposter feelings. So you can see why success actually can be quite a terrifying prospect for people who fear exposure. Mm. Um, and, and they're deeper, I think, more, again, un unconscious motivations for why people might fear success. You know, for some people, they fear overtaking their parents. You know, they can't quite allow themselves to have a better life than their parents you know, because that generation, perhaps their parents hadn't had the opportunity to enjoy their career, to be financially secure, to have all the better things in life and overtaking one's parents, you know, for some people, leaves them ridden with guilt, particularly if they imagine that their parents had quite unhappy lives, quite sad lives. So there's those underlying feelings of guilt a kind of a survivor guilt for doing better than one's parents mm. oftentimes those motivations again run more deeply so interesting yeah so so the, the fear of failure might be more on the surface that we're kind of might be more aware of that but this fear of success could be more unconscious and actually be sabotaging you and 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 causing you to yeah, sabotage yourself or doubt yourself or hold yourself back in some way. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I spoke to one woman and it was quite interesting because she had, uh, she came from working class background and her, her mother hadn't been educated. Her mother was actually quite angry about having to be a stay at home mum and, and raise children. 
because she wanted to go out and to work. And, and so, you know, when my client uh, found that work was so satisfying, she could, you know, she could hardly bear it, you know, to think that she had the things that her mother wished for. Mm. I think that's a theme that I come across with my clients quite a lot. You know, it's hard to overcome those feelings of guilt for doing better than one's mother or father in that regard. So interesting. So interesting. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. So it's another thing I wanted to talk to you about was, and you mentioned this, you touched on this in the beginning, narcissism. Narcissism, which I think is like a big trendy, it seems like a trendy topic. Like there's so many YouTube videos about narcissists, I've noticed, and lots of people talking about this. But you talk about the difference between a productive narcissist and a pathological narcissist. So there are different types. Can you explain what that is? Can you explain, first of all, what a narcissist is made for people that don't that don't know? Well, you're right, and it's so popular. The term seems to be thrown around all the time. Everyone's calling their ex-boyfriend a narcissist, basically. Which That's I don't think right. Fair. They can't all be. <laughs> That's right. That's right. People say it about everyone. I think Trump has really popularized the term, hasn't he? And suddenly everybody's a narcissist. So suddenly if anybody is self-interested or ambitious, or basically I think it's anybody that makes us unhappy, we accuse them of being a narcissist. It just gets thrown all over the place. And as if everybody's a narcissist, but not us, everyone else's because they've made us unhappy. But of course, that's not the case. It's become such a popular phrase. And but I think the thing to keep in mind is that we all have a degree of narcissism. Narcissism isn't a personality type. It's not something that somebody catches or somebody becomes. You know, narcissism is, I guess, a trait that, you know, we all have a degree of it. In fact, we couldn't go very far without some narcissism because somewhere it's a self-belief we have in ourselves if we didn't have a degree of narcissism we wouldn't have confidence to go for that job promotion for example or to take risks or well we we couldn't function very well without it so a degree of narcissism is not just helpful it's, it's quite crucial so if we can begin by understanding that we all have narcissism, but then the other thing to understand is that narcissism itself runs along a very long continuum. So at one end is what we call more healthy and productive narcissists. And these are people that, yes, they have a certain sense of self-belief, a strong self-belief. Um, they also usually are quite intelligent and they can, you know, they know how to get people behind them. You know, they, they are good leaders. And we refer to them as productive narcissists because these people get things done. So in the workplace, they're, you know, good to have on board. Um, so there are people who have a degree of narcissism and they're quite good leaders. I mean, you have to have some narcissism to get into a position of leadership without that degree of narcissism, you, you really couldn't get very far. So there are people who have that narcissism and we call them quite productive. Now at that level, these people are still quite empathetic. They can still be very supportive of people in the team and appreciate that if some people have good ideas, well, if, it, if it's for the good of the company, that leader could back those ideas, so to speak. Now, on the more extreme end, when we talk about malignant narcissists, when we talk about 
pathological narcissists, how people perhaps refer to Trump when it becomes more of a kind of, I guess some people might say a mental illness. I think that's when you have to make a distinction between a productive and a pathological or malignant narcissism. And the difference is in a capacity to empathize because on the extreme end, those narcissists have no capacity for empathy. Everything is about them. They're quite willing to take your ideas and make them their own. They have no interest in helping their team. And they oftentimes surround themselves with people who simply back them or believe them. Um, rather than having a diverse team. So, you know, these are people who can be quite destructive in business, quite dangerous. And the other thing to say about these people is they're, the more extremely narcissistic they are, the more fragile the personalities. So one way to understand narcissism is, is a kind of defense against feelings of fragility. So the more fragile they are, the more rigid their narcissistic defense. And because they're so rigid, they have to rid themselves of their own feelings of inadequacy. And the way they do this oftentimes is by bullying and harming people close to them, if you can understand. So that's why they become so harmful in the workplace. So there are sometimes these extremely narcissistic bosses in the workplace. However, I have to say, they're very few and far between. So be careful about accusing your boss of being a narcissist simply because he doesn't back your ideas or he seems to be, you know, quite full of himself, you know. So the other thing to remember about these narcissistic bosses, oftentimes they're very intelligent. They're very successful. They're very good at inspiring people and getting people to be inspired about their work. So there's very good traits that they bring to the workplace as well. And it's useful to appreciate that. You know, sometimes I say to people, because people sometimes often ask, well, how do, you, how do you live with a narcissistic boss? Well, one thing to do is to appreciate the good things that they bring to the business. And the other thing is to keep in mind that the more extreme their narcissism, the deeper their fragility, because it might help you to be a bit more compassionate towards them and understanding. Uh, so you might be able to get along. Of course, at the very, very, very extreme end, you may just need to get another job because they can be so damaging. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting you say about being careful about labelling people as narcissists. I think it is something that's getting thrown around so much that it's it probably discredits the term or something it kind of waters it down maybe if everyone you know everyone's labeling their boss and their ex a narcissist it kind of makes it um yeah kind of I don't know what the word is I'm looking for but it, it kind of yeah it's, it's not going to be very helpful I think and also if you call someone a narcissist no one wants to be called a narcissist do they it's not going to go down very well <laughs> I don't people think. say it people say it as if it's negative but it is not necessarily negative you know, we all have some self-belief and self-interest, of course. You know, other, if we didn't, we wouldn't have any ambitions. We wouldn't have any desires. We wouldn't have any longings. So narcissism is, is, is quite a healthy trait. But it's important to know when it's destructive. It is important to recognize when you yourself are being harmed by a narcissist at work. So, you know, that, that's something else altogether. And if you aren't being harmed at work, then you need to take steps to protect yourself against a narcissist. 
you know, it might be that you need to leave, but, you know, if you don't want to ignite tensions with your narcissistic boss, then I'm afraid you'll have to find a way to go along with their agenda. You have to find what it is and go along with it. You know, a lot of people think, well, that's really unfair, but actually they can't take challenges. That's another kind of distinction between a productive and uh, a pathological narcissist. A pathological narcissist can't take challenges, you know? So uh, that's one way you can recognize one very soon. They, they can't control their emotions. So if you say anything to them that they might interpret as a threat to themselves or a challenge to their opinions, you know, they'll react aggressively. So the basic thing is to do is not do that. Don't challenge them. Don't criticize yeah. them. Don't blame them. Don't, don't do the sorts of things <laughs> that make them feel threatened. But if that is the reaction, then you know you're dealing with them pathological narcissist and mm. to be honest oftentimes the best thing to do is to get out and find another job okay because yeah. on the extreme end you have to know these people don't change yeah yeah I've spoken to a couple of therapists who will say you know the NHS can't you can't treat someone in the NHS for narcissism because it would just take too long and cost too much and it's almost like I don't know if you do you think it's treatable at all or is it you know literally just need to get out no, well like I say there's very few extreme narcissists in the workplace they're very actually very small proportion of the population that's what people don't recognize so people see a glimmer of narcissism and then label it as narcissism but of course you know people on the kind of milder end or moderate moderate end of course they can learn oftentimes these people are very ambitious so they and what can learn empathy of course, and one can develop interpersonal skills and one can learn to hand over praise to underlings and not demand all the attention for oneself. You know, a lot of these things can be learned. And for people who have to deal with their narcissism on the more mild or moderate end, well, of course they can learn. Uh, but it's just the very extreme personalities that perhaps are so rigid and the personality structure is so extreme that oftentimes even therapy fails to fails to help. So knowing where people lie on this continuum is the first thing to recognize. So interesting, so interesting. I'm sure everyone listening is going to be thinking about <laughs> about the narcissist in their life. Yeah. <laughs> oh gosh, um, I wanted to ask you, I suppose, a bit more about your own personal kind of experience and how how do you take care of your own mental well-being and your own mental mental health can you can you share a little bit about that yes of course I can I'm happy to um, because I think the best thing is to develop a lifestyle of course where you are living uh, more in balance um, so that when setbacks or occurrences happen in life or in the workplace you know you can handle you can face what arises and of course I mean, I've done a lot of exploratory work in my own therapy, which has helped me to make sense of my experiences. I think you're asking more about the day-to-day -day practice. And there are several things I do as a daily practice. Uh, one is, which is I've never talked about, is I, in fact, also teach the Alexander Technique, 
which is a way of teaching body use and body balance and coordination. So, you know, I find that looking after my physical use helps me mentally and emotionally to keep that balance. Once you can attain that physical balance, that helps you in your kind of overall well-being. So I practice the, I teach, and I also practice the Alexander Technique on a regular basis, and uh, I meditate. Uh, I practice transcendental meditation, so I meditate twice daily, and have a lot of time, and I try to find time for a lot of fitness as well, and a lot of time in nature, and a lot of time to be outdoors. So that's what I do for my well-being. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, I do. I do transcendental meditation too, and find it so okay. so helpful. And yeah. is that Alexander technique? Is that to do with kind of posture and breathing and things? Is that because I'm just noticing how my posture is probably not very good. <laughs> just like I need to sit up straight. But can you can you say a little bit more about what that is? Well, it is about posture. It's learning to use your body correctly. It's kind of learning to use your body the way it's designed to be used. So it's not teaching breathing as such. You mentioned breathing. But of course, if you're using your body correctly, if your spine is lengthening and you have the width and the free muscle use and you know good muscle use and, and good postural use, breathing just does itself. It's perfectly natural. There's really nothing to learn. You know, the body's very intelligent and can do its own breathing without learning to do anything extra. But it's oftentimes the poor body use that interferes with good breathing. Right. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I need to look into that. Yeah. More. Um, is there anything else that you want to share with listeners? Anything else about the book or any other takeaways that we haven't maybe maybe spoken about that you wanted to share? Um, well, you know, one of the things I'm hoping for the book, I mean, I'm hoping that people have a reaction like you've had, that they read some of these um, insights or, or read some of these case studies and stories and that it touches a nerve and triggers something in them. I want people to, to reflect more about themselves, to consider where they come from and, and also to be less harsh on themselves. I just find that people are so critical about their own habits and, and their own, I guess, what they imagine are their personal failings. But understanding oneself and understanding where some of these traits come from can really help you to have a bit more compassion with yourself. So what I really um, hope for with this book is that people will kind of expand their thinking, deepen their understanding, have all sorts of insights which find them, which find them interesting and take them down various pathways that lead to more insights and more understandings because of course this is an ongoing process there's no end to this journey if you like of understanding oneself of course so I hope people will get curious um, I hope they'll be interested I hope they'll enjoy the book brilliant brilliant and where can people find out more about you and get the book and that sort of thing well they can uh, look at my website Naomi Shugai dot com um, there's some quite a lot of information there uh, i write regular features uh occasional features now for the financial times uh there's a feature out this morning about how how, how our early childhood experiences influence our working lives and it says some of the things that we've been talking about today brilliant, brilliant. And the best way of course is to read the book yeah and the book's called the man who mistook his job for his life um, yeah, so thank you so much for everything you shared. It's been so interesting. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you. It's been lovely to chat with you.
You have been listening to the Karma You podcast with me, Chloe Brotheridge. Don't forget you can download loads of freebies for anxiety and confidence at my website, karmayou.com. You can also find out about my app and my one-on-one sessions. Please do subscribe to this podcast in the Apple Podcast app. And if you have enjoyed it or found it helpful, please leave me a review. It makes a massive difference to helping the podcast get discovered by other people. And come on over and find me on Instagram. I'm hanging out there every day. You can find me at Chloe Brotheridge. Let me know what you thought of this episode. And please do share it with anyone who might need to hear this today. So I'm sending you loads of love and I hope you have a brilliant week ahead. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.